Welcome back to the Depth and Light Podcast. I'm JD Pirtle. Our guest today is Bob Claggett. Bob is founder of I Like to Make Stuff, a YouTube channel with 2.75 million subscribers and a website which features a multitude of free project how-to videos and step-by-step instructions. Viewers get in-depth and easy-to-follow instructions on how to make just about anything, from a full-scale interactive R2-D2 of Star Wars fame to bunk beds and much more. Bob is the author of the book Making Time and is also the host of two podcasts, Brain Pick and No Instructions. say that the internet has had a huge effect on the humans who are able to access it may be the biggest understatement of all time. While large swaths of humanity still don't have access to the internet, or have access to a sanitized and restricted version of it, the internet as we know it has completely changed the way we share ideas and knowledge. The internet has also changed the way we learn. If you can access it, there is a near infinite sea of knowledge. If you're curious about the how, why, or when of something, you can find out more in seconds. With this vast knowledge source, which is continuously added to and improved. Should we continue to memorize facts? Or should we focus on learning how to learn? Many educators are encouraging the latter. They suggest that we should think of ourselves as perpetual learners, and many teachers have stepped up to help us. Makers like Bob Claggett are turning their own passion and curiosity into high-quality and free troves of instructional materials on a variety of topics. A former software engineer, Bob leads his team at I Like to Make Stuff through hundreds of projects presented in an honest and confident manner, designed to help others do the same. man well thank you so much for joining us today on the show i really appreciate you taking the time to do this absolutely happy to do it um so one of the things i've been doing lately that i've really enjoyed and i think i've really enjoyed hearing um kind of the stories that people have is just asking them what they were like as kids like what well so what were you interested in as a kid what were your what did you want to be when you grew up and what were the things uh that you liked to do to do or spent your time doing well i mean i was like the typical 80s kid um so i was into all the pop culture stuff of the time still am i'm surrounded by star wars stuff like oh, in nice. every direction That's um awesome. so i mean i did a lot of outdoor stuff um a lot of mountain biking and rollerblading and climbing and things like that and then inside it was all music and legos and just like playing with stuff my siblings were older than me so just old enough that we didn't we weren't into the same stuff mm-hmm. and so they were teenagers and you know and I was the little kid so I ended up spending a lot of time in my play was by myself even though I wasn't by myself for the majority of my time so I got really I guess pretty good at being able to entertain myself with building toys and you know kind of imagination space and so I did a lot of that and then I think because of that I ended up doing a lot of outdoor stuff that was kind of a one person sport climbing Mm -hmm. and rollerblading and you know like those aren't really team things like i never played on a team and music was kind of that way but then i got in a band and did the high school rock band thing that a lot of people do sure so just playing rock music with so that was the most collaborative team kind of based thing you did but there's nobody to like catch the ball when you threw it with the siblings that were older so you just kind of solo sports yeah so as you got into high school, so music was your like main interest or what else were you interested in in like school and just kind of what, what did you fill your time with when you had spare time? Yeah, music was the big thing, especially in, in high school. I started out um, on piano as like a six-year-old or something doing classical piano. And it was one of those things where my parents forced me to do it until sure. you know, they just kept going because they knew it was important. And then I was actually telling somebody the other day, like around like seventh grade, I it something clicked and it became mine and it was a mm-hmm. thing that I really wanted to learn more about and do more of and then that morphed in the next couple of years into guitar and mm-hmm. then you know as a teenager you immediately start like well I got to be in a band like that's what yeah. you do with a guitar right and 
It's like you, you woo girls and then you start a rock band. Um, right. And so I, the last half of high school, I did a lot of that. And then I think that socially kind of drove me away even further from a lot of the other kids. Mm-hmm. Um, I just didn't have, I only had music in common with a few people. Sure. And so it drove me away from a lot of, not drove me away, like I wasn't friends with them, but I just was interested in different stuff, spent my time in different places. And those people that I spent time with musically were also a lot of artists, people who mm-hmm. were, you know, kind of outside the normal uh, social groups and stuff. And so then I got interested in art. And last couple of years of high school, spent a lot of time in the art class and, uh, you know, joined the yearbook club and figured out how mm-hmm. to take pictures and develop pictures and all that type of stuff. And so I just got all these interests kind of late in high school, kind of late in the career of like figuring out what you're going to do in college or figuring out what you're going to do after high school. Sure. It's kind of late to that. But the art stuff hit me pretty hard last couple of years of high school, art and music. And so my art teacher was really awesome. She, she kind of saw that I had a, a lot of interest, but not a lot of experience there. Mm-hmm. And she really poured into you know, helping me just explore a whole bunch of stuff in a short amount of time, which I think was pretty formative for just who I am. Cause that, that's what I do now. I just explore things for a living. And, um, so the last couple of years of high school, I kind of decided the art thing that seems really cool. I'd love to go to art school, but I don't really have enough history. I don't have a portfolio. I don't have art to show. I just mm-hmm. want to do it, but I don't, I haven't done it. So like, how right. do you get into an art school with no portfolio? And um, so she challenged me in my in my senior year to spend the year. This is in class. This is like instead of doing my assi- my assignments, mm-hmm. she challenged me to fake a portfolio over the course of a year. And it was so awesome because she was right. just like, you don't have to actually have work you or, you know, have like a huge body of work. Just do a little thing in this and a little thing in this and a little thing in this. And if you do enough of it, it'll look like you've spent all this time learning all these different things. Wow. And that's what I did. And actually, I ended up doing that same thing at the end of college as well, which is really funny. But um, I don't know if that answers your question or not, but I spent a lot of time in art and she really uh, kind of helped me explore a whole lot of stuff in the last little bit of high school. That's amazing when a teacher takes that much extra time, you know, to kind of coax you towards your interest, you know, when they see it there, especially if you're just now, you know, just getting into it in the last couple of years. So you ended up at Savannah College of Art and Design, and I noticed that you majored, you got a BFA in computer art. So what kind of, what, I mean, I assume that you were kind of doing more traditional fine art in high school. What led you toward computers or using computers to make art and what kind of art were you making? Actually, at the end of high school, um, I got really interested in graphic design and that was all computer based, but at this, this was 95. So it was pretty limited as what was available, especially to a high school. Like we didn't Mm -hmm. have a huge computer lab or anything. And I convinced our librarian to get a windows computer with uh, a Pentium 90. I remember that like stood out as like, we're going to go to the next level, you know, (laughs) that was the stuff then. Yeah. Yeah. And so like, I, I was really interested in the computer stuff even at that point. And, um, Graphic design was my understanding of how you would use that. Mm-hmm. And so then I went to, to SCAD, started in graphic design, and I go into the first day of graphic design 101 base class. I sit down and the guy goes, okay, no computers. And I'm like, oh, nope, wow. I'm out. <laughs> yeah, that's, <laughs> like, <laughs> that's terrible. Yeah, which I mean, I understand. It was a fundamentals class. It's, you know, you need to learn how to draw and how to letter and stuff by hand. So you sure. understand it. But that immediately said, like, to me, as an impatient college freshman, like this is not where I want to end up. And so I don't want to even try this path, which was the wrong way about it to go about it. But anyway, so I switched over to computer art. And at that time, uh, it was, it was so it was called computer art because it was so general. It covered mm-hmm. like, uh, 2d animation, like hand-drawn animation that was mm-hmm. digitized 3d modeling and animation, uh, you know, video, um, sound design. It was like all sorts of stuff, like anything to do with a computer. And that was perfect mm-hmm. for me because I could, again, just like try all these different things. And so I got a little bit of education on a bunch of different stuff, but not a whole lot of depth on any of it. Sure. Which is apparently the story of my life now that I yeah. look back, you know. So what kind of, so you, if you were like having a show or something like your senior year, what were you showing? I mean, were you just kind of doing things in all these different media from video to 
animation and just kind of was there one thing that really stuck out to you one media or medium in that in that area or uh, not like really, a- not until like the last quarter of school. Again, I, I, I found the thing really late, but um, I had to take a portfolio class mm-hmm. as you do at the end of art school. And they they help you collate all your work from school into a format that you can then use after school. Mm-hmm. And I had jumped around so much and had this like such a wide variety of stuff. Um, in the last year, I had found interactive work like mm-hmm you know, uh, what was it? Macromedia director was like oh, yeah. the thing at the time. And, and nobody, none of the teachers knew how to do it. None of the, you know, there was no department for it. Mm-hmm. And so I started learning how to do these like interactive CDs and everything. And I got really interested in that. And then I went to this portfolio class and the guy's like, all right, you have to make a demo reel. I'm like, well, I can't make a demo reel of an interactive CD. Like it right. is, it is a demo reel by itself for what yeah. it is. It's not time-based. Right. Yeah. And so, the same thing happened where he challenged me to fake a demo reel. And nice. so in this class, I spent the last quarter learning After Effects so that I could fake that I had made these big commercials. And so mm-hmm. I basically made like, I don't know, 15 two second commercials. Nice. <laughs> I just stuck them back to back. But I learned a lot of video stuff and After Effects stuff right there at mm-hmm. the end. But the thing that really got me excited at the end of school was the interactive stuff and the programming and, um, so I took two pro, two interactive classes my last quarter, and on the last day of college, um, my favorite professor came to me and said, "Like we're like last day," and she's like, "Yeah, I got to take you to the dean's office." Whoa! <laughs> I'm like, what? <laughs> what? So we go to the dean's office, and he basically said, "Your teacher has decided to go back to Scotland or wherever she was from. She doesn't mm-hmm. want. She's leaving the school, and she recommended you to teach this class." Wow. So I'm teaching a class that I just took, like I'm still technically in the class. Right. Um, and I mean, I was starting a company on the side, but mm-hmm. we weren't making any money yet. And like, I was trying to figure out how long I was going to have to work at the mall and stuff. Sure. And so I just took the job and taught, ended up teaching that class right after I took it for a couple of quarters. And, mm-hmm. um, that really pushed me into the programming side of things. Cause I was then doing it at, that that teaching job and I was starting an interactive agency with a friend of mine. And so mm-hmm. that kind of that set the next like 15 years of my life in motion for software development and everything, which is what I ended up doing for a long time. Mm-hmm. So what, what kind of software development were you doing and what was the company you guys started? What was its kind of mission and everything? That company was um, essentially a web development, you know, for doing at, at the time, just like websites. But then I had this, this non-web programming thing that I had learned in school. And Mm -hmm. so I started building um, like company intranets. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, I don't know if I was the first person to do this or not, but somehow I stumbled into making a company intranet for this big semi-truck manufacturer where we were in Flash 4. Mm -hmm. And and (laughs) so I... I've made a thing in a thing that you're not supposed to use for that type of work. Sure. But it, it taught me a whole lot of stuff and it pushed us in our region. It pushed us kind of out front as like doing something really interesting that kind of shouldn't work. And so we ended up doing a lot of, um, intranets through that and then application development. And then there was this kind of web design website thing on this. The rest of it was, that's kind of what paid for everything. Right. Um, so we did that and ended up doing kind of marketing web stuff for a long time. And then I ended up eventually leaving that and going to work for Dell mm-hmm. doing um, like UI development for these these appliances. It's less interesting, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. I went from marketing to eventually working on products for people. And that was a another big shift in using the same programming that I was already interested in, but instead of trying to convince people to buy stuff that they don't really need, I was helping them do their jobs better. And so that was, you know, the same skill set was doing a very, very different thing. Sure. So at the same time as you're working as a software developer, I understand that you, there's like this burgeoning kind of making happening. Was that just kind of happening around your house and on the side or how did the kind of dual track of you as a maker evolve from there? I think I think a lot of that really got pulled out of me in art school because of those foundations classes that you have to take. It's like everybody has to do a three dimensional design class where they 
you know, you have to physically make a thing from a drawing and that's what the whole class is. And then there's a lot of, you know, like screen printing and a lot of just hands-on type fundamental stuff that you have to learn. So you get this broad picture of art and broad picture of how to create your vision into mm-hmm. reality. And so I got a lot of it through that. And then I think after through college and after college, I just kind of started making furniture for people and like just was always, I don't know, just kind of putting stuff together. Mm-hmm. And then when I got into software, um, I spent a huge amount of time at a desk and then got married and had a kid and spent even more time not doing any of that stuff. Mm-hmm. And so then I started intentionally, I had this big desire to get back and build things. Cause I'd been like restoring Vespa scooters from the sixties and like mm-hmm. guitars and all this random stuff. And I stopped doing all that. And so then eventually I just decided that I need to get back into doing something with my hands off the computer. Mm-hmm. Started doing, making furniture and different things as a hobby again. And then that started kind of eating away at the time that I had after work, you know, I had like this family time. that's like super priority work time, super priority. And then mm-hmm. whatever was left, I was just cramming full of making stuff just mm-hmm. to not go crazy. <laughs> so just kind of filling your soul with this thing that you were yeah. really drawn to do that was yeah. really fulfilling. And, and I did that with music for a while. Actually, before that, I, I did a lot of YouTube stuff with music. I made music with other people all over the world and we would, record things and put it on YouTube. And I did that mm-hmm. for a while as a way to fill in that gap for sure. me. Sure. And that is a lot of work and doesn't pay off. Sure. So that got exhausting after a while. <laughs> so then how did I like to make stuff? I mean, you know, uh looking at it now, it's such a huge, huge enterprise. And I mean there's so many different aspects of it. But how did that kind of evolve from the hobby into um what it eventually became your full time job? Well, so I started doing it as uh, I started making this stuff on the side and then I wanted to do more of it. And I felt my wife is amazing and never made Mm -hmm. me feel guilty or like anything like that. But I always had this kind of guilt about if I'm not working, I should probably be with the family. And if I'm not with them, like there's gotta be a really good reason why I'm down here cutting pieces of wood and, and doing this other stuff. Mm -hmm. My mental health is like part of that, but I, I just needed to be able to justify it. So I was like, well, I'll make a website that way I'll teach I'll just put out there what I'm doing. Somebody else can learn from it. It's mm-hmm. got value to somebody. Awesome. So I started doing that and started a blog. And I did a few projects that way, taking tons of pictures and writing these big, long articles about it. And it was just, I hated it. <laughs> I hated mm-hmm. the amount of like photo editing and sure. having to describe like every little thing. And I'm like, well, I took 10 pictures of shooting nails into this thing. And then I have to right. write about shooting nails. Yeah. Like, well, I did video with music, so maybe I should just turn on the video camera and make it. And then I won't have to write it. I won't just say it, you know. So then I started making videos about the projects. And I knew at that point when I was going to do the first video, I knew that it was going to be something that I would get caught up in. I didn't know if it would work, but I knew I was going to get like I was going to get stuck doing this thing. Sure. And so I wanted to make sure that it was set up right. And um good friend of mine, Forby is a designer and we've been friends for a long time. We've worked together in different companies and stuff. And so I went to him and said like, look, I'm going to, I've got this website. I'm going to start doing this video stuff. I've got an idea for the style for like how it's going to be shot of it, you know, invested in a camera. Like I'm setting all this stuff up. Sure. I need, I need a logo. I want this to look right from the beginning. Right. And so we started with like full website design, good logo, He's an Mm -hmm. awesome designer. So it was like the first thing he designed. I was like, yep, I'll take that. Yeah, perfect. And so we really tried to set it up from the very, very beginning to be super consistent and professional. And um, so I just started making videos still with no intention of it really turning into anything. Or I just wanted it to be good. Sure. And what year was that? Would you say when like the first 2012, 2013th first video went out in 2013. Okay. And, uh, so put out a couple of videos. They started getting some views. And then a friend of mine, David had a show where he was, it was kind of like the late night show of woodworking mm-hmm. where nice. he would, he, every week he'd be like, you know, here's 10 awesome videos from this week from other people or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know him at the time. And I just sent him my videos and I was like, I don't really do just woodworking, but you may like the, I don't know. You may like the project anyway. Mm-hmm. And so he showed one of my videos and the view count was like 
the graph of the views just had this kick up this ramp that was, I mean, mm -hmm. you can still see it in my analytics. It's crazy. Mm -hmm. And that was the first real push where it, it changed a whole lot. The number of people that were watching and the number of subscribers and all that stuff, which isn't important. I mean, I want to stress that those numbers don't matter. They don't mean anything, but when sure. you see them change it, you know, that has an effect on like your motivations and priorities and stuff. Sure. And so once that had a little spike, then I started thinking more about like, oh, well, that means I have to keep doing this and I have to do mm -hmm. more of it and I have to figure out how to continually make it better and all that. And so then, mm -hmm. I don't know, I get it just, I kept doing more of it. <laughs> sure. Yeah. So then I guess, so at what point did it become your full-time job? Because I think that I remember talking to you when we first met and that was like a key yeah. moment for you. I mean, obviously oh, you, yeah. could, you could stop doing something you didn't enjoy necessarily and start only doing the things you loved. So uh, yeah. when did that, was that just a gradual thing or was it like one day you just went into the boss and said, thanks, but no thanks. That was like, oh gosh, I'm, I'm trying to think of the year. I think it was 2015 mm -hmm. and I was, I was working at Dell remotely. So I was working from my house where mm -hmm. I'm like physically about 10 feet from my shop. Like my oh, tools are right there. And so I'm sitting on the computer, I'll program for a little while and then I'll go over there and like cut a piece of wood and come back and program a little bit. Just make sure you're logged on, on to everything. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like VPNs on, I'm good. Like everybody knows I'm around. Yeah. But it was, it was a super open environment so I could do my work on my own schedule, but that gave me a lot mm -hmm. of freedom to be able to do these two things back and forth. And I was trying to fit so much into those, the workday and after the workday and the weekends. And I just kept doing more of it and more of it. And so we, uh, my wife and I just started talking about like, what if I went part-time or what if, you know, like how, how can this thing continue to go on? Cause it was just, it was too much. I was doing two things. Sure. And, um, so we, we talked about it for about nine months or so. I mean, like I stressed over it and overthought it like I do everything else. Mm -hmm. And, um, basically got to a point where uh, it was funny because the place I met you was in an event in Chicago mm -hmm. and a couple of years, I don't think it was that year, but a couple of years before that or sometime I was there and I was stressing about, I really want to take this leap. Mm -hmm. Was that the year that I met you? It may have been. No, I think that was 2017. So I think you'd okay. already maybe already made the leap. So I was there and I was stressing about this and these two total random strangers, we were in a conversation together about the thing and I was like telling them about it. I'm like, you guys, I don't know you, I, you know, but like, here's what I'm stressing about. Can you help me out? And they were like, mm -hmm. you write software, right? I was like, yeah. He goes, so if you need another job, you can walk out into the street and say, I need a job and you'll get a job in software, right? And I sure. Like, uh, I mean, yeah, I guess so. He's like, then quit your job. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and what it was so for? plain. Yeah, it was so yeah. plain from this outside source i'd been stressing over it and th you know just like everything and it was such a plain just like what do you have to lose like seriously like how bad could it be you're skilled you know you've you've tried different things you have a, a job like a work history like what's the worst that could happen yeah you just have to get a job again yeah yeah worst case um, scenario yeah yeah and so that was one of the big pivotal things for me to say like, okay, now I've, I have no choice but to give this a shot. So basically we took nine months and I, I said, I'm going to work both of these full time for nine months, mm -hmm. like legitimately 80 hours a week. Wow. It's going to be terrible for my family. This is going to be rough on everybody. Mm -hmm. And this is my wife and I discussing this. Sure. But I want to put a time limit on it and I want to work super hard on both. And then at the end of that time limit or somewhere before then, I'm going to find out one of these things is really in the way. One of these things is really not, you know, it's, it's stopping me from doing as much as I can do. Sure. And then that'll be the thing that goes. And if that's, right. I like to make stuff, then so be it. And man, we were probably like four months into that and I was exhausted and I was like, dude, that job has to go. Right. It <laughs> so, was evident. Yeah. Yeah. It, it was really clear and it was clear to everybody else and my friends and family before it was to me, you know, what mm -hmm. needed to happen. But um, so I, I had this awesome manager and we were in like a one-on-one -on -one meeting one day and he just, and I was like trying not to talk about it. And he was like, so I saw you on YouTube I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> busted. <laughs> yeah. And, and it was, he was like, you're really good at that. Like you should consider maybe doing that. And I felt like I was about to get fired, but he was really just being supportive. He was trying to oh, say that's like, great. 
you know, you're like, I can see you're passionate about it. You're good at it. He was trying to kind of like goad me into like, you know, maybe you should try this thing. Wow. And so when I did finally decide to do it, I, when I talked to him about it, he was like, man, why did this take you so long? Like you should have quit this job. (laughs) Oh my God. So it was awesome. I, all that to say, like huge amount of support from everybody involved on Mm -hmm. the job side of it and the family and the friends and everything. I was the, the thing that was being super hesitant about making that leap. Right. And I mean, as soon as I decided to do that, I've never looked back even for a split second, like not even the shortest amounts of, oh, I miss this part of it or that part of it. Nothing. Sure. <laughs> nothing yeah. at all. Not that it wasn't a good job or not that it wasn't fulfilling or anything like that. It's just this uh, being able to do what I do now is just more than I ever really expected I would be able to do in my life. And I'm smack dab in the middle of it. And I feel like I'm kind of just getting started at it. And, yeah. You know, it's. Yeah. I mean, that wasn't that many years ago. I mean, it's, and so, I mean, I guess time-wise, I mean, my big question, I was like doing research for this interview and, um, you know, you've written a book, you produced tons of videos. I tried to count on YouTube. I couldn't figure out how to like show the actual count of videos, but it's just tons and tons and tons. It's like 300 and something. Yeah. I mean, which is incredible. Um, you produce two podcasts. You said, I think once a week, each one, uh, you make two a week, you have four children. So, I mean, how do you have time for all of that? I mean, what's the (laughs) secret here? Um, uh, I mean, I'd love to say that I'm just really good at stuff, but that's probably not the truth. Uh, I think time management is a big part of it. Like I'm just, I'm kind of a structured person. So, mm-hmm. <clears throat> you know, being able to segment my time to get certain things done, um, probably has a lot to do with it. I'm just motivated. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, all the stuff that I spend my time on is stuff that I really, I believe in or I think is valuable. So it's easy to have motivation to do those things. You know, it's not right. hard to convince myself to, to get a lot of work done if I, if I feel it's going to be valuable to people. And I mean, at this point I've got, like I was telling you before, I've got three guys working with me full time. So it's not mm-hmm. like I'm doing a hundred percent of everything now for a long time. I did. Sure. And then I had a, an editor come on before I went full time. My friend that designed the logo came on and started editing videos so that I could make the videos. Mm-hmm. And so it's been kind of a slow growth of getting help with the stuff that I felt was really dragging down overall productivity. And Mm -hmm. every time somebody comes in to take um, a piece of that work and take some of the responsibility, I can't help myself, but to fill that time up and that responsibility up with something else. And so it, I end up stacking, you know, uh, tasks and ventures and just all this stuff just keeps piling on. Um, even that's probably not a great thing, but it's what I do. <laughs> and I've got yeah, all the people that work with me. So, you know, I totally trust them to take things and, and own it and um, be responsible for it. So. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like you've taken a lot of time to build up the structure, build up the support uh, people yeah. in the background. And then there's been moments of daring where you just kind of take the plunge. And I mean, that's probably yeah. the only way to do it. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think there's this kind of, at least for me, there's been, the, the series of steps, right? There's like this mm-hmm. slow uphill and then like a spike and then a slow uphill and spike. And that just happens mm-hmm. over and over. Like the full time was one of those big spikes and hiring the first person full time was terrifying to me. Sure. And I've, I've had employees before at the previous business and stuff. So I've been through the worry of being able to pay people and how right. what I do affects their families and things like that. And so that was really scary. But every one of those scary cliffs has turned out to just be an amazing you know like it worked out and sure. whatever happens after that is uphill um and yeah. i guess i'm lucky in that way that all that stuff has has really paid off yeah just kind of trusting the process and the path you're on um so i was i was looking at like a lot of different videos you know before we talked and i was looking at the you know the latest r2d2 build iteration so i mean one of the big questions i have is like how do you decide what to make i mean because it's not like you know you don't seem I really feel a kindred spirit with you in the sense that you're like a generalist, you know, you don't, you're not just like a woodworker. Yeah. You're not just a metal worker. You're not just a programmer. So how do you decide what to make? Um, since your skill set is so broad. Um, that's, it's actually kind of tough, but I have a lot of time where I, I just will look around it. I've always tried to, to make things that have a, a specific purpose. They're solving a problem mm-hmm. or it's a thing that doesn't exist that I want to exist or, mm-hmm. you know, not just like, 
I don't, I don't necessarily want to teach people how to make dovetails. Right. That's awesome. But other people can teach people that I want to like do a thing that solves this problem in my house. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of times I will just look around our house or like friends houses and just look for things that could be better. Mm -hmm. And then those ideas all go on to this kind of, I have a digital list of just every possible brainstorm that no matter how dumb it is, everything goes there. Mm -hmm. And so then when I'm like filling out our schedule, I kind of look at that, just see what sparks interest in the moment and put it on the schedule. And then I always try to stack up things that are totally unrelated. Mm -hmm. So uh, one of the big things about YouTube is like you want to set the expectation of your audience so they know when to come back and what they're going to get from you. And mm -hmm. they they get dedicated because they like the consistency of what they're going to what they expect to see. Sure. And so I, de I decided early on because I'm really bad at that portion of it, that their expectation that I'm trying to set to set is to not know what to expect. Sure. As that's kind of counterintuitive, but it works mm -hmm. really well for my audience. They know that it could be anything every week. Mm -hmm. And so part of the fun of that is when I'm laying out the schedule, I can, I almost intentionally jump around, you know, it's like mm -hmm. I'm doing leatherworking and then R2D2. Those things don't right. really have anything to do with each other, but you know, people, I think, and, and not every time, but people in general are interested just to show up to see what's there. Mm -hmm. And if they've liked the presentation in the past, or if they've liked the way the videos are done, then they're, they might be mm -hmm. willing to stick around for a thing that they're not necessarily going to do themselves. They mm -hmm. just want to see how it's done or how it's presented. Sure. And I've actually found that I like star Wars a whole lot and I've right. done a bunch of star Wars stuff lately. And so I'm, I'm trying to like wean myself away from that to make sure that people don't start going like, Hey, like it's the star Wars like, guy. Yeah. It's a yeah. star Wars guy. Yeah. 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 So what, so what happens? I mean, like, I think obviously like a lot of your videos, the, they are practical things that might go in your own home or somebody else's home. But well, I mean, do you do commissions? Do some of these things end up in, uh, somewhere else or do you just keep all of these things that you've made? Um, how does that work? I mean, most of the things I keep, cause like I said, most of them are serving a purpose, like they're, they're purpose built. And right. Right. So most of them I keep, I mean, occasionally, you know, I'll ask friends and family if they need anything or if they, somebody mentions like my sister-in-law has a photo studio and she does these giant prints. And mm -hmm. one day at lunch, she was just talking about like, I have all these prints and they have to stay rolled up until we deliver them. I'm like, Oh, you need like a map cabinet or something. She's like, mm -hmm. Oh yeah, that'd be great. And so that gave me a reason to make something that I otherwise, I don't, I don't have a need for. Sure. But, um, it served a purpose for her. So that was right. awesome. I don't really do commission work if people, um, just, you know, I get a lot of emails like, can you fix my guitar or can right. you, can you make right. me a shelf that goes in my closet or something? I don't do a lot of that, but, uh, if I know somebody personally that has a need, I, I love to, to make things to help them out. Occasionally we'll get a sponsor that wants something built for a property. Like we did a, uh, a Mortal Kombat arcade machine for Mortal mm -hmm. Kombat 11. Yeah. And I couldn't say no to that. It was like sure. a legit, you know, licensed arcade cabinet for the people that make the game. Like I got to do that. So we did that yeah. and then we had to ship it across the country. Wow. That was kind of crazy. Yeah. It's going to be a little nerve wracking probably. Yeah. Making sure it gets there. So, I mean, one of the things that's amazing about your work is that you cover so many disciplines. I mean, there's like digital fabrication, but then the next thing, you know, you're on like a bandsaw or something. So how do you, I mean, is this, is it, have you just learned to be a really good learner or do you feel like you have like some special skill to like learning new, new disciplines or new techniques or is it just iteration? I think, I think for me, I, my dad has always said to other people that he would, would see me do things because I didn't know that I wasn't supposed to be able to do them or mm -hmm. that I didn't know that I couldn't, you know, right. and I think I've just always had this thing about not being afraid to give something a shot that I don't know how to do. Sure. And, that ended up becoming kind of the like one of our our purpose statements for the company is that I think everybody's capable of that. I think everybody is capable of just trying something and and it'll probably turn out fine, you know, mm -hmm. but I think every a lot of times we're brought up with this fear of doing things wrong and that's going to have like um, a bad case scenario is always going to be the worst case scenario. I think right. we taught that a lot and that's right. absolutely wrong. So one of our whole mantras, I guess, is to just 
to convince people that they're capable of more than they think they are. And that only happens through putting yourself in a situation where you have to do something you've never done before. So we try to do that every week, you know? Sure. And the downside of that is it makes me look like an idiot sometimes because I do things wrong Mm -hmm. on camera in front of a whole lot of people. Um, Whereas, you know, if I, if I was on TV, then there would be a crew of people that were like fact checking how I should do something. And it would be right. reshoots and re-edits to make sure that it was, you know, no, no network was going to get sued or something like that. But I think, I hope at least that people connect with the fact that I'm just like a dude trying to figure out how to do stuff and just willing to give something a shot without, you know, getting a degree in it or, or going to take a class with a specialist or something like, I just want to give it a try because I want other people to do that. So, yeah, I mean, I think when I was like watching your work or watching the videos and the builds, there's like a real honesty to your process. And I mean, I, I really was like impressed that a lot of times you'll, you'll start a video with, Hey, this is a mistake I made. And this is what happened. I mean, I grew up watching this old house religiously, yeah. um, with my whole family and those guys never showed any, like they never said, Oh, we were wrong. So, I mean, it seems like you've really built that into like your ethos and just the philosophy of your work. I tried to, yeah, because I don't want to, I don't want to come off as the person who thinks they know everything, but they do it wrong, you know, because mm-hmm. I mean, that, that happens a lot on YouTube where these people have, they talk from a a place of authority when they don't actually have mm-hmm. the authority. I also realized recently that there's this holdover in even a YouTube audience. I think of YouTube as like this real scrappy kind of anybody can do it, right? Anybody can put a video out. And Mm -hmm. I think of it from that perspective, from the uh, creator and from the audience. But I think the audience a lot still look at any published media, podcast, videos, books, as if you can get something published in any of those medium, then you probably have authority. Right. And that's not really true. But if that if they think that and you do something wrong, then you're saying to them, I have authority and I don't have any idea what I'm doing. And there's like this contradiction and they don't like it. And then they leave terrible comments and then they're confused. Mm -hmm. So I think one of our big things is just trying to like make it really, really clear. Like my channel trailer says, I don't know what I'm doing most of the time. Sure. Like that's okay. You know, but I think getting that across to people is a bigger hurdle than actually like doing the projects. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's like allowing yourself to be vulnerable in front of, you know, millions of people. Yeah. 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 That's amazing. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think the, um, looking back at your journey, I'm just wondering, like, I mean, this, this, I, it's interesting that you kind of started this right at the rise of YouTube as a place for like credible instruction and also it kind of like Patreon and some things coming out. I mean, do you feel like it was like you were at a, in the ground floor of something right as it, it was exploding or, I mean, do you think that like, was there a certain aspect of being in the right place at the right time with the right skill and attitude that, I mean, because this has happened incredibly fast. Yeah, Uh, it really has. I mean, it's been amazing. I I do think a lot of it had to do with me just being in the right place at the right time. There were definitely people doing maker type videos before me. Sure. Really successful people doing it. Um, So I was not in like the first wave, but I think I was in the wave, the first wave of people who didn't feel like they had to be a pro at mm-hmm. it. And, um, and maybe that's not true, but that's the way it felt at the time. But I think um, there was a real hunger from the audience perspective for maker, just like regular old person in their shop, in their garage, mm-hmm. you know, making things that they want to have, um, which is me and a whole bunch of other people were started doing that kind of around the same time. And I think there was a big mm-hmm. craving for that. Since then, it's definitely that the number of creators in the space has become not overly congested, but there's a lot. There's a Mm -hmm. lot of people who have seen it over the past four or five years, Mm -hmm. and they are empowered, which is exactly the reason I wanted to do it. They're empowered to like, oh, I could make videos on my phone in my garage or in my yard and make a thing too. And so they do it. And then the overall just volume of content around the same kind of topic has just ballooned in an amazing way. I, where I came into it, there wasn't that big balloon. And so me and a group of several other people at the same time kind of had a head start, you know, we got, we, we got a lot of the initial audience, um, 
And the cool thing about audiences, it's not a competition. There's crossover, right? The same person right. subscribed to like whatever thousand channels. Right. So it's not a competition from that perspective, but we have been around long enough that we have a bigger base. And then as the whole thing grows, we just kind of continue to have that bigger base. Sure. Um, yeah. And so I think a lot of that was, like you said, just me being in the right place at the right time, uh, right time and having this kind of weird combination of skills from like previous from art school having mm -hmm. a little bit of video and a little bit of camera work and a little bit of like writing my own music for the videos and mm -hmm. a lot of people don't have that collection of you know like 10 percent skills but i just happen to have a lot of those to get started well certainly in our educational system i mean you know i think the way school has been set up i mean while you were in school and currently even now is you know kids if they are not good at something immediately they're really steered away from that and steered yeah. toward the things that they're quote unquote good at um and that doesn't lead to generalists and it sounds like you know focusing on you know just kind of following the things that you're interested in and learning new things you know you you aren't a specialist per se but right. that really has paid off i mean um in the generalist world that we occupy now um, so I was going to ask you, so what was like the most difficult build? Is there a build that just like kept you up at night or, um, or is each one successfully successively more difficult? They're um, not, they don't get more and more difficult because I try not to do that thing where you one up yourself and always try to make it. Sure. I don't know if you, have you ever heard of Colin Furs? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Colin Furs is insane. He's an awesome guy. He makes incredible things, but I don't know how he continues to add more fire and more sure. spinning things. And just, you know, he's always one upping himself and that seems right. just really tough. I don't want that because I don't think that's sustainable. So right. Stressful. I try really yeah. hard not to do that escalation. Um, as far as like the stuff that's been really difficult, I think the finer things get, the harder they are for me. Some people thrive on like fine detail and, mm -hmm precision and that stuff is really hard for me to to stay focused on like i just want to like move fast get the thing done i care mm -hmm. more about the final result than the process often and so i can't really think of anything specific right now maybe r2d2 r2d2 has become very difficult because in the beginning it's like cutting big big pieces of of frame that mm -hmm. you really won't ever see but you're getting the general shape Right, right. Then you add the skin. The skin has to be the right color, and mm -hmm. the blue part has to be the right color. Oh, and yeah. if the gaps aren't the same, then it's oh, really yeah. obvious, you know. And there's and millions, then, like, of millions of people will comment on that. Yeah. Yeah, and there's so much reference, and it's such a known visual that yeah. the further you get from it being exactly right, and and I don't think anybody, I don't care what anybody else thinks about my R two D two, but I care about it. Sure. So the the closer the precision gets on that, and the closer I get to it being finished the harder every little thing becomes sure because I'm getting, you know, it's becoming more and more fine. Right. Um, it was funny cause I did a, a rifle from the Mandalorian. Yeah. I saw show. that. Yeah. And I wanted to do it at that point before the show came out because there was literally one reference picture and it was a terrible picture and right. I had a toy, a six inch toy. And I'm like, I can, I can make this rifle now and it can be totally off base, totally lacking the detail. And it's totally yeah. All right. Because, nobody else knows <laughs> before it's official canon before it's official. Right. And yeah. then there's going to be a thousand 3d models of it that are super oh, yeah. nice and whatever. And that was so much fun. Um, because it was just a creating, building up shapes from bigger shapes and just adding little details that I was kind of making up as I went, like there wasn't a lot of sure. there. So the, for me, the harder stuff is definitely the finer yeah. detailed stuff. I remember a few years ago when those guys were building the Millennium Falcon in their backyard and they got so much <laughs> flack from everybody about that's not where the cockpit is, even though the Millennium Falcon, as you know, since you're a super fan, like it doesn't work out, you know, the way the, the floor plan. So somebody's had to decide on a floor plan and those guys just did their best to put it together and people got so upset with them. Yeah. I mean, the super fans did. So I totally can see that you're like, you're trying to honor something you love that's part of our culture. I mean, especially a lot of us. Um, but staying true to those details. And I mean, some of those probably aren't totally clear, even if you can see a million pictures of R2D2. And I'm sure there's tons of schematics that people have released. Yeah. Um, well, and there's there's a million variations too. You know, he yeah. looked a little bit different in every scene of one movie, much less every yeah. movie. So there's a little bit of leeway there, but it's it is something that I care a lot about. And it's something I've wanted since I was uh, as long as I can possibly remember. Yeah. So it's a it's a big getting that project right and done is kind of like one of those, this is a, a, a point in your life 
right. I've worked up to this thing. And then when I get done with it, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what that next thing's going to be. Yeah. So, C3PO, um, so, yes. No, 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 <laughs> no, no. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. So I guess, I mean, you kind of talked about this. I mean, you are, you, you were in a wave that kind of watched the early YouTube producers and you kind of learned from them. You had definitely like, I feel like a vision a very specific honed vision of a professionalism and a polish that you wanted and kind of a really honest voice. But I mean, what do you, what advice do you have for like people who, who just want to get out there and start making videos of the things that they make and putting them on YouTube, maybe getting a little support on Patreon or something doing crowdfunding. I mean, what advice would you have for people that want to break into this business? I mean, I would think a couple of big things. One is that it's super easy to get focused on, numbers and to think about growth and to think about all that stuff. But every time that your video is played, there's one person on the other side of the screen that's watching your video. Mm -hmm. A single, it doesn't matter how many millions have potential to watch it or billions or whatever. There's a single person watching the video at every time and talking directly to that person makes a connection that matters will probably matter to that person. Mm -hmm. I could tell you story after story of personal events that have come out of one of my videos that was just about making a random whatever like mm -hmm. it's it's incredible and i didn't expect it but i always try to remind people that this is not just going on tv for the masses like one person watches this and it's going to affect them in a certain way and you have a, a lot of opportunity to affect people and sure. being being honest and passionate about what you do matters and they can see it mm -hmm. and while it's easy to chase trends or to chase or to try to copy what other people are doing that are successful um that won't give you a long-term um like a audience that really cares about you so it imagine like if fidget spinners were still huge and i like started making a whole bunch of fidget spinner videos mm -hmm. and i got billions and billions of views for like a week and then they would be gone mm -hmm. but if you know, you, you start making videos about the things that you personally care about popular or not. And people start watching that. They watch it because they can tell that you care about it. And those mm -hmm. people are going to stick around for a really long time, even if the growth is, you know, a, a tiny drip and it's mm -hmm. way slower than what it would be. Otherwise, those people are going to care. They're going to stick around. And those are the people that will want to help invest in you through Patreon or through something else, you know, some other way they, sure. they're going to be the people that you'll get to know by name and will, help you along and encourage you and be mm -hmm. affected by you. And so that's, that's just a much better way to do it. I think to be honest and passionate and just to speak to one person at a time. Sure. And I guess if, if for some of those people, if the thing that they're building and videoing doesn't turn out to be a full-time job, like it has for you, at least they're making that thing that they care about and it means something to them. And that's, yeah. you know, and they're talking to that one single viewer, like you said, which I think is such a great perspective to have. Yeah. And I even know some people who have started making videos and, um, about making projects and it didn't go anywhere. Like they, mm -hmm. they barely had anybody watch it. There was this one guy I was talking to one time. He was a patron of mine and, um, he was saying that like, you know, I've made like 25 videos and they have a total of like 26 views. Right. And I'm like, well, that's a lot of time. Like, you know, what are you going to do about that? And he was, it's not for them. It's for my son. And I'm like, yeah. Oh, God, like man. you're making an archive of yourself well, yeah. for your kids to watch when you're gone. And I hadn't even considered that. I was doing it full time and I hadn't even considered that. Yeah. And wow. once you think about that, like, man, everything you invest yourself in, everything that you create online, offline, in your house, in audio and video, everything is a record that you can leave for the people who care about you now. And that, man, <laughs> that made yeah, a big, a big impression on me. Yeah, that's a total perspective I wouldn't even have thought of. That's amazing. Yeah. So now you guys, you know, 2.71 million subscribers as of like two hours ago on YouTube, and you've developed a huge following with, I mean, a truly amazing work. So what's next for you and I like to make stuff? Uh, well, I was telling you before, we had a big meeting about this. Um, unfortunately, one of the big problems with doing YouTube is bottlenecking. Mm -hmm. And I guess it's not just YouTube, but that's what I know. So like I am a huge bottleneck for the company mm -hmm. um, because there's only so many hours in the day that I can physically design something or build something or be on camera or talking to a microphone or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so I think for us, it's a lot of trying to figure out how um, 
how we can have we we have a pretty clear, very clear goal and a reason for what we why we do what we do and how we do it. Like that's mm-hmm. all really clear and set in stone. And so I think what's next for us is trying to figure out how to take that those ideas and not not pull me out of them, but make them exist outside of me mm-hmm. so that I like to make stuff can be a thing that can affect more people than I can. And I sure. will continue to do my part in that. But I think there's um, all of us have a huge passion for education in, mm-hmm. in different ways and for encouraging people and getting people motivated to just try stuff. And so I think there's a bunch of ways that we can do that. I don't, I don't know that we can do that in an, a, like a, an actual education environment. Mm-hmm. I haven't figured that out yet. Right. But I think building some sort of uh, toolkit or some sort of something official for educators who who know how to do it and, mm-hmm. and already have a place to do it and already have students who are passionate for it, giving them some sort of resource, I think is probably in our future. We're sure. trying to figure that out. Um, I think giving uh, individuals a physical resource, some sort of tool, something that they don't have access to otherwise. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm being super vague on purpose because that's sure. what I do. Yeah. But I, I think, I think there's a lot of resource that we are in a position to provide and to create um, where a lot of other people are just not there yet. And so I want to, I want to be a good steward of that opportunity and sure. and try to create stuff that can outlive me and can continue to kind of spread um, to people who don't have the opportunity to be able to make stuff anywhere else. Sure. Well, general enough. (laughs) Yeah. That sounds that's that's like a major undertaking. Yeah. Well, Bob, uh, I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time. This is a great conversation and it was awesome to catch up. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the depth and light podcast. Thanks again to Bob Claggett and his team at I like to make stuff. If you like this or other episodes, please consider writing a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about Depth and Light, check out our website at depthandlight.com or follow us on Instagram and Twitter via the handle at depthandlight.